You're supposed to dive in feet first, right? But when all things come with the Lord and you have that faith and God is leading you to do something, just go all in. Not hesitant, not doubting. Lord, strengthen my unbelief. Lord, help me to have a heart that will go all in for you. See what you can do in making a difference and turning the tide. We all know here this, morning, this afternoon that we can't make a difference, but God is the one who makes the difference. By the way, the sooner we learn that, the better off we are. Only God can affect the change in the difference. As we yield our nothingness to his everythingness, because he is everything and we are nothing, then something can actually be done that will make an eternal impact. I don't know about you, and I presume this to be the case with you, but I crave that. I've only got one shot to live this life, and so do you. I don't know what the length of my days will be. The Bible teaches us that we should pray, Lord, teach me what uh, my span might be. Teach me and help me to number my days. I want to apply my heart unto wisdom, and I want to apply myself into what matters most, not of this earth, not of this world, not of the carnal or the sensual, but God, I want to live for the eternal, for the heavenly. Help my focus to be on what matters most. That certainly is an emphasis that we all need and one that we might get more into this week about living in the light of eternity. May God consume our hearts. That's why it's so wonderful to have a conference as this. May the Lord use this in our lives where 10 years from now we can look back and say, you know, God did a transformative work in my life and it affected me and I spiritually grew as a result. And now it's affecting so many other things. Would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 64? Isaiah, chapter number 64. The faster you turn there, uh, we're also going to go to Joel, chapter number 2, and read two verses. Uh, use this as a springboard into the message. Isaiah, chapter number 64, verse number 1. This passage has been claimed by many revivals of yesteryear, prayer groups over the centuries, desiring and longing for God to do a work. By the way, the reason we pray for God to do a work is we, because we believe that he can. And beyond just his capability, the fact that he will do something in the due season. Isaiah 64, verse number 1, the heart cry is given and you can see it with the first word. Oh, there was no formalism here. There was no ritualism here. We've dispelled all of that. We've revolted against that. We're hungering and we're thirsting and we're panting as was preached last night. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens. That thou wouldst come down. That the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. I would love to take time to get into these verses, but I don't have permission of the Lord to do that. This is just something in which we're going to see, and by way of application, run to uh, something in the message that's very crucial for us to study. And so having read that, let's now transition to Joel chapter number 2. Joel chapter number 2, verse number 28 Verse number 29. Joel chapter number 2, verse number 28. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass afterward, I've circled that word in my Bible, 
Now shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon thy handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you for these verses. Thank you for these passages. Lord, we desire to see it in our lifetime. We pray that you would genuinely bring personal revival, a church-wide revival, a community revival, a national revival, global revival. Lord, we know that nothing is too hard for you. We know that you specialize in the miraculous, uh, that you are the God of the impossible. Nothing is too hard for you. Lord, help us to get the right view of you, that awareness of thee, and as a result of that awareness of you and what you're capable of doing, it'll bring an awareness of ourself and how desperate, how desperately we need you, how broken we are. We must become to see you do great things. The Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would have great liberty. Anoint me afresh and anew with thy power. We ask for that unction. Help us, Lord, to have ears that will hear, hearts that will respond Lives that will do as you seek to transform us more into thy image. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Late last night, the Lord put a seed thought in my mind of a revival story that I had not studied much. By the time I looked at the clock and by the time I was done working on this, it was three in the morning. <laughs> I said, Lord, I need to get some rest. So I went to bed and he woke me up at eight. At least I got five hours of sleep. I'll sleep well tonight. But the Lord just consumed my heart. There's so many instances, experiences, accounts, occurrences of God rending the heavens in yesteryear. And every single time I study one of those, I know last night I mentioned I'm tired of reading about it, tired of thinking about it. And in a sense I am, but at the same time it does encourage me. Because I know that if God could do it then, God could do it when? Right now. Absolutely. In Pyongyang, Korea, that was the capital of that nation, they experienced a nationwide revival in 1907, much like that of Wales in 1904. How many of you are familiar with this revival? Not to put you on the spot, a handful. But 40 years earlier, from 1907, such a move of God would have seemed unthinkable. For centuries, Korea had been shut off from the rest of the world. By royal decree from the emperor, the nation was allowed relations only with China, and contact with Westerners was strictly forbidden. If a Westerner, a European, dared to enter and was discovered, it was an offense punishable by death. One missionary, Robert Germain Thomas, a 27-year-old from a rural town in Wales, became burdened to reach these perishing souls in absolute darkness and was willing to bring the gospel at any cost. He was stationed in China for two years with the London Missionary Society and learned both languages, Chinese and Korean. That's quite commendable, isn't it? In the late summer of 1866, he found an opportunity to board a ship bound for Korea. It was called the General Sherman, an old steam-driven schooner that was under the employment of the British Trading Company. The owners hoped to travel up the Taidong River to the capital, uh, Pyongyang, and establish trade agreements with the government. It was a risky move, a dangerous mission, but they believed that the potential payout would be great. Since Thomas knew the language, he volunteered to be their translator and believed that this was God's way for him to be able to reach this closed country. The General Sherman was nearly 200 feet long, 
with two large masts with white sails and a single smokestack. Such a large vessel in a river must have been a strange sight for the Korean people. Her noise and size made it impossible to miss, and the ship literally attracted thousands of people as it would stop in every port along its journey. This was something Thomas fully took advantage of. He preached at every stop and distributed Bibles to anyone willing to receive one. Of course, again, this was risky to do, but he believed it was worth it. Four days into their travels, the ship came to a village by the name of Chang Sapo. And bear with me as I try to pronounce these Korean names. An 11-year-old boy named Hong was playing in the market when he overheard the excitement about some foreign vessel coming upriver. Wasting no time, he quickly ran home and found two of his friends, Che and Pai. I don't know how you say it, P-A-I, maybe you could teach me. To come with him, the three boys made their way to the river's edge, and when they saw the multitude from the village, they were shocked to see uh, the docks thronging with people. And in the middle of this crowd, they noticed a tall man with a pale face and golden hair. They had never seen anyone like him before. He kept shouting excitedly above the noise of the crowd and handing out books as fast as he could. The stranger's Korean was good, but he used words they didn't understand. He kept saying one curious foreign two-syllable word over and over that they tried to pronounce. Jesus. Jesus. The General Sherman sailed on. But what alarmed them was the closer they drew to Pyongyang, the less welcoming the villages became. The crew was inclined to abandon their mission and sail back, but the ship hit a sandbar, and now it was impossible for them to move. Of course, they were frantic and trying to free the vessel, but their situation had deteriorated quickly as an order came from the emperor to destroy this vessel at all costs and to kill the crew. The Korean army now surrounded the grounded vessel from both shores and began raining down flaming arrows, and soon the vessel was ablaze, and the ship's captain gave the order to abandon ship and swim downstream. Thomas, however, remained behind, tossing Bibles from the burning boat toward the shore, yelling, Jesus! Jesus! He stayed as long as he could before jumping overboard with one remaining Bible left in his hand. He knew that there was no chance now of escape. Soldiers were waiting for him at every point. Most of the other crew members had been dragged ashore and killed, and Thomas came on the bank and fell to his knees before a single soldier who stood over him with a spear in his hand and a sword at his side. Grasping and holding the soaked Bible up in front of him, Thomas pleaded with the man and the others about to take it. And the soldier flinched, then paused. And by the way, this is not sensationalism, this is just telling the story. The soldier flinched, then paused, his spear poised and ready to thrust, and for a moment something gripped a hold of him and he considered it. But when the noise of his commanding officer cracked in the distance, he ran Thomas through in the chest and cut off his head with his sword. On September 3rd, 1866, Robert Germain Thomas became Korea's first martyr. He had arrived in hopes of reaching a closed nation with the gospel, and in a matter of days within its borders, his blood ran downstream. Upon receiving word of his death, some said, What a waste! What did his sacrifice produce? But that question was already being answered by the power and providence of Almighty God. The soldiers who killed the Westerners that day picked up the Bibles that washed ashore and brought them back to their homes in the capital city. 
Pyongyang. The word of God would take root. We know that his word will not return void. That's a promise of God. It's a win-win-win for the Christian. Always is. Always will be. It will prosper in the thing whereto it's sent. Accomplish what God would have it to accomplish. One man, these soldiers who grabbed a Bible, even decided to use pages from it as wallpaper to decorate his house. Approximately 25 years after Robert Thomas's death, Korea opened its borders for a short period of time to the outside world, and in that moment, missionaries flooded in, only to discover that its fields were ready for the harvesting. A gentleman by the name of Samuel Moffat, he was a young man in his mid-twenties from a small town in Indiana. He was used by God to lead a respected Korean man to the Lord. Samuel Moffat, being one of those missionaries, led, led this man to the Lord. This young man's name was Cho. Che, excuse me, Che. Yes, the same little boy who had heard the missionary preach about Jesus on the dock in his fishing village. The Lord then used Che to go and plant the first church in the capital city, in the same house that bore on its walls the pages from the Bible Robert Thomas gave his life to bring to Korea. Sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Sounds like it's something that man has manipulated to give as a well-crafted story, but no, this is a biblical account. It's a supernatural tale of something miraculous that was about to shake a nation down to its very core. Wrench heavens, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Over the next 15 years, churches multiplied. And in January 1907, over 1,500 Korean pastors and church leaders from 150 miles around Pyongyang gathered together with missionaries in the capital for a two-week Bible conference. As the meeting progressed, the Spirit of God began to move powerfully and heaven-sent revival broke out among them on the following Tuesday evening. After the service concluded, very few people wanted to leave and one eyewitness wrote this, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep, and in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down, and weep. Godly conviction had descended upon the assembly. It seemed as if guilty souls found themselves standing exposed in the light of God's holy presence. And there they saw themselves not as they thought themselves to be, but as God saw them. According to testimony, every sin a human being could possibly commit was, commit was confessed that night. On the platform, among some of the preachers, sat a highly respected leader among the churches in Korea. His name was Chu. Not to be confused with Choi, the other guy. Chu. It was obvious that he wasn't comfortable, and as each man stood before the audience and was confessing his sins publicly, the more he looked to be in agony, and what no one realized is that he was carrying a great weight of sin, and, and he knew he must surrender it. He finally gathered up the strength to approach the pulpit, and he hung his head in great shame and began to speak. His tears caused him to choke on his words, and at first he was hard to hear, but as he spoke, the words became painfully clear. He confessed to the sin of adultery and the misuse of church funds. The man trembled from head to foot as he spoke. He sensed himself 
not standing before an audience, but before the very God in heaven, sitting upon his throne in his righteous glory. He beat the pulpit over and over with his fist and cried aloud in absolute brokenness, Was there ever such a terrible sinner as I am? You're playing the part. First-class Pharisee and hypocrite. A respected leader, but committing vile and wicked abomination and filth in his heart and life. Was there ever such a terrible sinner as I am, he repeated. He then fell into the floor and tossed about in great pain, pleading for the Lord to forgive him. As True wept and wailed, on the platform the whole assembly melted and actually followed suit. Of course, this was something that was not worked up. This was something in which God brings down, and revival is something that cannot be worked up. It's something that can only be brought down. And to God be the glory. God is the one who can rend the heavens, and God is the one who can pour out His Spirit. And revival is something that is possible. But revival always begins with godly conviction and the need to repent of sins, as we'll discuss more in this message. Some of the men there in the audience struggled to stand, trying to rise to their feet only to fall in brokenness, confessing their manifold sins before the Lord, and things were beginning to break loose, and people were laying on the ground and crying aloud for forgiveness and freedom from their own chains of sin, and there was no quieting of the meeting. This went on for hours until one by one, each soul found blessed relief. Another eyewitness penned, we all wept. We could not help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 o'clock in the morning with confession and weeping and praying. This very moment became the ignition point for national revival. Over the next four years, this fire swept throughout the entire country and more than 100,000 were gloriously saved, including the soldier who killed a missionary Robert Thomas. I presume that you still have your hand in Joel chapter number two. We're about to read it again, but I want you to go back to our first text of Isaiah chapter number 64. And many times, if we're not careful, and I don't presume uh, this to be the case here, but if we're not careful, we'll focus on uh, the fruit of revival and the rejoicing and the radical Christianity and the red-hot glow for the cause of Christ. And yes, oh God, please, uh, this is what we crave and this is what we're preaching for and longing for and praying for. But that is the fruit of revival. And before we have fruit, we must have a root. The fruit of revival is rejoicing. Radical Christianity is something that's red hot. There's a glow for the glory of God and his gospel. But the root of revival is repentance. Genuine, broken, sincere, godly sorrowing as the Bible teaches it. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, are you there? Would you say amen? Are you minding the Lord? I pray that you are. Um, I wrote that story last night and I'm just so consumed about it. Uh, he says in verse number one, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down to thy presence. But notice, down to verse number six, it transitions as he talks about revival and things and all of what God could do. And I, I really would love to get into this passage, but I don't have permission to do so. But notice verse number six, he says, But hold the horses. Yes, we've got an urge for revival. But something needs to be fixed. Something needs to be handled. Something needs to be taken care of. Something needs to be dealt with. But we 
are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And nobody's interested in the things of God. Nobody's calling upon your name. Uh, nobody's stirred up to grab a hold of you, Lord. Verse number 7 talks about. And we find, yes, an urge for revival. But if I could word it this way, there must be a purging for revival. Before there can ever be a rending of the heavens, there must first be a rending of our hearts. That's what Joel 2 talks about. Would you flip there? Joel chapter number 2. We read in verse number 28, and it shall come to pass afterward. And it shall come to pass afterward. Well, what's he talking about? What's got to take place first in order for there to be a word afterward? Jumping back to verse number 12, we see here uh, the thought begin, Therefore, also now, in Joel 2, verse number 12, Therefore, also now, saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, and praise the Lord, we find the promise tethered with it. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Notice it's he is. It's a present tense um, uh, word. And what a blessing that just as God was gracious and merciful and long-suffering uh, during this revival in 1907 and other revivals that we could discuss and talk about, God is still the same merciful God. The blood of Jesus can still be applied. He's still great in his marvelous grace. He's still able to forgive sin. He has great kindness unto you and to me. And God will forgive you. And God will forget that sin if we are faithful and just. And willing just to say, God, you know what? I'm done with it. Here you go. Laying it all on the altar. You know, the outpouring of God can even begin with just one person willing to get thoroughly right with God. Do you believe that? We've seen that so many times in meetings. Just one person having the courage and taking that step. It's awkward, sure, from a fleshly standpoint. Of course, not from a spiritual one. It's embarrassing from a fleshly standpoint. But taking that first step of faith and sometimes how that opens a floodgate. There have been times, and I certainly... As I mentioned last night, I think in passing, I don't want to confine God and label what revival is. God can do whatever it is he wants to do. He works in various ways. He's not cookie cutter. And so many times we're not careful. We try to make him cookie cutter into what we think revival is. We should just desire a manifestation of God in all his glory and the fullness of his presence in whatever capacity that may be. And sometimes it is a mighty rushing wind. Sometimes it is a still small voice. But man, uh, sometimes with the mighty rushing wind, as you think about something that took place uh, back in uh, Korea in 1907, uh, to see one person uh, convicted and one person broken, one person, their heart burns for surrender and full dedication unto Christ, and they're done with the uh, selfishness and the sin and the carnality and the compromise, and they can't stand it any longer. And it's not for show. It's not for pomp and circumstance. It's not for some out 
outward, if you will, emotionalism. But man, they got to seek God in that very moment. It's as if they don't get to the cross in that uh, millisecond that it feels like their heart will burst and they'll die. And they flood an altar, uh, even though it seems to be awkward, even though it seems to be embarrassing. They've got to get right with God in that moment because it's consuming them. And how one leads to another who leads to another. And before you know it, an entire congregation is on their knees. Altars are flooded. Men are going outside with men and women with women having a free exchange uh, with dialogue and prayer, getting right with one another and young people getting right with their parents and children being called to the ministry. It's a beautiful thing. I presume you've experienced it before. I say this carefully. There is a sense of spiritual, I don't even know what the right phrasing of the English word would be. There is a euphoric feeling when God shows up. Where it's almost as if he sweeps you off your feet. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like describing how God calls you to preach. You can't describe it. It's like describing when you knew that she was the one for you. You can't describe it. It's something so wonderful and something so supernatural and something so miraculous. Every single time you study revival uh, and history past, you'll see that it always begins, these movements always commence when one Christian or a handful of Christians or a group that's unified with one mind, one heart, are willing to genuinely, radically, thoroughly get right with God, nothing held back. I believe this is what it will take for us to see revival in our land today. May God help us to get thoroughly right with Him and desire for Him to do this convicting work in us as He so needs to. Search me, O oh God, right? Search me. Try me. Here it is. See if there be any wicked way in me. He's not challenging God. He's just saying, it's all here. There's no closet that's locked that you can't access in my heart, my life, my mind. There's no secret panel in the wall that you can't discover. There's no trap door underneath the rug that you can't see. It's all here. And even where the locked doors are, I will unlock it. Even where there is a, a sealed room, a secret room, uh, 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 hidden among the seams of the paneling uh, in the den, I will open it so you have access. Even where the trap doors are, I'm removing the carpet and I'm letting you go in it as you so desire. It's all here, oh God. I'm concerned that across our country, we're willing to get cleaner, but we're not willing to get clean. Just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and as a result, what happens? We see a little bit of trickling. We see a little bit of breakthrough. We see a little bit of uh, mercy drops that shower. And yes, oh, oh, we saw that. And we're content with the nominal. May that not be true of this church, of this staff, of this college of this man who's standing behind the pulpit. 
May each and every one of us here this afternoon, if we're not right with God, that we would genuinely get right with God. And as we crave for the rent heavens and we crave for the outpouring of the Spirit and we desire the Lord to do something wonderful, the mighty manifestation of His glory and the furtherance of, his, of the gospel in our lifetime, may we understand that the prerequisite of revival, the root of revival, is repentance born as a result of godly sorrow. I had another story that I was going to share with you, but I'm going to, I don't have... Liberty to tell. Yeah, that's just basically the truth. I hope that you're minding the Lord. This is the true pattern to experience revival, and every revival movement in history identifies that. The root to have the fruit. I believe as Christians, it's time for us to once again see sin as God sees it. That we recognize that it's still sin. It's wicked. We allow his word to be truth. And his definition of sin is what the definition of sin is, period. Doesn't matter what culture says. Doesn't matter what this world believes. It doesn't matter what my heart wants to deceive me into thinking. And could it be that we're really good at convincing ourselves that sin is not that bad? We whitewash it, could it be? We excuse it away, we justify it, try to make it acceptable. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, do not give fair names to foul sins. Call them what you will, they will smell no sweeter. There is no justification of sin. I was in your conference room right over here where the Lord gave me this thought. There is no justification of sin, only justification from sin. You know, God's grace will never condone what his holiness condemns. What was wrong 2,000 years ago is still wrong today. Well, we live underneath the age of grace, and there's a lot of people that are using this as a, 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 an excuse to justify their compromise and their carnality and their complacency and the carelessness that they have with the flesh and the world and the inundation of influences and all this kind of stuff. And we might get more of that as the week progresses, as the Lord leads. But to understand this, what God is against uh, he is still against today. Yes, we live in the age of grace, and thank God for it. The age of the law, people were committing adultery. They were dragged outside of the camp and stoned till they were dead. Children and youth disobedient to their parents, even authority, stoned until dead. I, I, I'm thankful that we're underneath the age of grace. Other things, and Jesus said, don't, don't, don't you dare accuse me or try to manipulate me to say that I am coming to eradicate or eliminate these things. No, yes, we may live underneath the age of grace, but I'm actually upping the ante. Uh, it, yeah, it was said that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that if a man even looks at a woman and lusts after her in his heart, he has already committed the very act of the sin. God has not lowered the standard, he has raised it. Thou shalt not kill, but if a man was to think a hateful thought or spite toward his brother in Christ, it's like he's already slit his throat. And so on and so forth. I believe that the call of God in the 21st century is still the same to break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord, to turn over every hardened place, to dig out the roots of sin, to bust up every spot of unrighteousness, to tear down every idol, to remove every influence that's unbiblical, to purge on everything that's unchristlike. And we cannot do this, but God can. 
Thank the Lord there's victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. We heard it last night, and it was a gust of wind to my sails. But where are the churches? Where are the preachers? Where are the Christians and where are the young people and where are the college students and individuals in America that are still radically serious and sincere about godliness and holiness? Oh yes, we want dramatic preaching that stirs the heart, but we don't want direct preaching that convicts the heart. We shout with thunderous amens when the preaching is against the sins of the world, but we sit in an awkward silence when the preaching is against the sins of the church. We deceive ourselves into believing that it's just a little sin. Just a little complacency, just a little compromise, just a little worldly influence. That's what the devil deceived Adam and Eve into believing too. It's just one little bite. It's just a deviation of one truth. That a little sin is still a big deal to God. The Bible says it in Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. Something about leaven is that once it's taken so small and put into that lump, that dough, it becomes invisible. It becomes hidden, unseen, under the surface. It's mixed in. But time will tell and reveal it. And the statement must be said in this moment. Just because sin is not visible right now, it does not mean that it's not present. Is the sin worth it? The temporal pleasure that it brings, and any preacher who stands behind a pulpit and tries to convince people that there is no pleasure in sin is a fool because God says there is pleasure in sin for a season. For a season. There's a definite starting point and there's a definite stopping point. And it always comes with a price. Sin um, will always leave a stain. Sin will always bring a chain. Sin will always bring pain. It always brings burdens and baggage and regret and heartache and suffering. Listen, sin must be dealt with. Sin must be taken care of. Sin can be forgiven and there can be victory found in sin. But people that hold on to sin, it manifests itself and it becomes a taskmaster and a slave. And now you find yourself brought down into captivity of it. And no longer can you experience the fullness of what God has for you. Sin is never worth it it's a lie straight from the pit of hell straight from my own heart that's trying to deceive me because this beating organ right here is desperately wicked who can truly know it every single person in this room is capable of being a serial killer that plunged the knife into those young people in Idaho I think it was was it Idaho every single one of you are capable of that and so am I for you to sit there and me to stand here and say, oh, that would never happen to me. The devil's already begun to weave his web around you. Sin is never worth it. Let's look at a few verses quickly. Are you minding the Lord? That's what I like to ask churches. Are you minding the Lord? Jeremiah 5.25. Jeremiah 5.25. It's a heavy message. It's a hard message. God bless you for having ears to hear. Jeremiah 5, 25. It's no coincidence that uh, revivals of yesteryear and tabernacle meetings and crusades, I have all sorts of postcards and pictures. and I love to collect 
snippets of revival history. Um, and uh, I just actually was able to buy a hymn. While you're turning to Jeremiah 5, I'll be able to stick this in. I'm excited about it like a little kid in a candy store, right? Uh, or one of my boys going down the toy aisle. But anyway, I was just able to purchase uh, a hymnal that was used in the Philadelphia Crusade of Billy Sunday. It's got every single signature of the evangelistic team in it. It's got Billy Sunday. It's got tickets in there. It's got all sorts of stuff. And it was from a guy that was a collector that I knew. And he said, would you be interested in having this? I said, yes. <laughs> Opportunity sometimes comes in just a moment. We jumped on it. I love collecting that kind of stuff. It was a witness if the cover of that book could speak, you know. Man, the stories that I could tell. It's a wonderful thing. You stop and you think about revival history, but every single one of those crusades, many times, D.O. Moody, R.A. Torrey, Billy Sunday, many of these people, of course, claiming a community for Christ, but beyond that, a majority of the time, guess what would be up behind the preacher and the pulpit, uh, the 200-seat uh, choir or whatever it would be, these words, thick black letters on canvas sheets, so every eye could see from any corner of the building, get right with God. The great need for repentance. Notice, notice that sin is not worth it. Jeremiah 5.25, the Bible says, Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. The Bible says no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Are you listening? I remember when I was in Bible college, sometimes uh, the eyelids would grow heavy. And so, you know what we did? We'd stand in the back if we had to. If that's you, I don't know if there's anybody like that, but just interject that. I saw one eye close uh, a little longer than it probably should. Maybe you're in the spirit of prayer. But please don't study the back of your eyelids, all right? No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly, but sin will withhold good things from you. Is sin worth it? No, it never is. It's going to turn away the blessings. It's going to turn away the outpouring. It's going to turn away the hand of God. It's going to turn away the wonderful things that he desires to uh, bless you with, as we heard in the last message, that blessing, so that way you can be a conduit and a channel, and God can use you to be a blessing to others around you, and you can make an impact and a difference in this generation. Journey with me now to Isaiah chapter number 59, very quickly. Isaiah chapter number 59. I love this verse, and this is one of the reasons, and I still believe in national revival, because Isaiah 59.1 is still in the Bible. Isaiah 59.1, the Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand, what? Is not shortened. Is that past, present, or future tense? That's right now in 2023. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But, hold on. I know you want revival. I know that you want miraculous outpouring. I know that you desire to see a, a sweeping move of God's saving hand. I know that you desire to experience rent heavens and man, the outpouring of miraculous answers to prayer. But your iniquities have separated uh, between you and your God. The word separated is talking about severing the connection. It's like taking, um, and I won't, won't do it. I've done it before, uh, but uh, taking a microphone cord and slitting it with a pair of scissors. And no matter how hard you try, you can't put that thing back together. Oh, I can take some black electrical tape and try to jerry-rig it, so to speak. No offense if there's a jerry in the room there. But I can try to make it work and such. And from a distance, it would look like everything's good to go. Oh, look at that. I didn't know it was separated. But you try to turn that power on and use that thing, guess what? No connection. And could it be that we have sin in our life and what's happened? 
We've separated between you and me and our God. And we try to patch things up and we try to have a little dimple. You know, even in the time, we know how to <laughs> spick back the hair and our dress is the right length and all these kind of things. But deep down inside, our hearts need to be rent. We need to get right with God. That sin is hindering us, not helping. He says, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he what, church, will not hear. Is that what it says, yes or no? Does it say cannot hear or will not hear? Louder. Cannot or will not? One more time. Cannot or will not? This means he refuses to listen. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We could pray revival for, for a revival for a hundred years, eight hours a day, but if our hearts are not right with God, it would be pointless and a waste of time. Our prayers wouldn't even be leaving a room. Spiritually, we may feel content and full. Oh, yes, we met with God, but did we really? The echo of our syllables and of our heart cry go beyond the roof or the ceiling of the place where we met. We must get right with God. Would you look at 2 Chronicles chapter number 24? 2 Chronicles chapter number 24, quickly. Jot these down, jotted these things down here. Just a few moments before I got into the pulpit, the Lord brought this passage to mind. 2 Chronicles chapter number 24. Verse number 20. You will see in my Bible here that I have one of these little page marks. You see that? It's well-worn. This was placed in my Bible over a decade ago to this very text. A constant reminder that I need to be right with God. Second Chronicles chapter number 24, verse number 20, the Bible says, And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people, and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye what? Cannot. It's literally, physically impossible to prosper while living a life of sin. The Bible teaches us that in the book of Proverbs, does it not? Whoso cover the sins shall not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. I do not want God to turn his back on me. So may the Lord help me and strengthen me to not turn my back on him. What is it this afternoon? I know this is a very confrontational message. Is it a lying tongue, an adulterous heart, a dirty mind with lustful thoughts, a stubborn, unsubmissive self-will, an arrogant pride, a critical spirit, maybe a judgmental attitude, an addiction problem for smoking, drugs, vaping, alcohol. Yes, there have been college students with those vices. I remember when I was in college, there was a young man. He actually sold drugs. Nobody knew it. Sold drugs. Preacher boy. There was a young lady that was in the dorms. She was sneaking out the dorm. And we had all sorts of protocols. And this somehow figured out to be able to sneak out of her uh, window. And things was in cohorts with her roommates to go to the strip club. Unbelievable. 
a vice, or maybe some besetting sin like anger or frustration. That's what I knelt and prayed to the Lord about last night. That's one of my besetting sins, frustration. I can get irritated if I'm not careful. Let that spirit, man, it'll raise that ugly head. Nasty old sin. Frustration. I got on my knees last night. I said, Lord, thank you. Man, I've known this, and I've confessed this thing a hundred times. I needed this reminder, and I don't want it to just be a reminder. I want it to become a resolve. Thank you. What is it in your life? Bad music? Wicked movies or television shows that are defiling your ears and your eyes and your heart and your mind. Maybe it's rebellion. The relationship you have with your parents is on the rocks. If we could be a fly on the wall and hear how you address your mother. The way you talk to your siblings. Maybe it's gossiping. That's a sin that people that have a desire for holiness have to be careful of. Because if we're not careful, the flesh will raise his ugly head to try to get us to have a holier-than-thou attitude. Amen. We ought to be holy because he is holy. We need to perfect holiness in the fear of God, but don't let the devil use a good and a glorious thing and the right thing to become a sin and blasphemous in the face of our sweet Savior. Maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's indifference, maybe it's envy, maybe it's greed, hatred, hypocrisy, strife, cursing. You have a cussing problem. Maybe you're at odds with a brother or sister here in the room, someone. But I'm thankful here that the Bible says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let every one of them and every one of us that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Uh, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. No more games. No more facade. No more pretending. Oh, God, help me to rend my heart. I want to experience rent heavens. I must repent for my sin. We're a few minutes past the hour. Can I go to one last verse? Is that okay? Am I allowed? James 4. James 4. Several other things. I'm just trying to mind the Lord here. James 4. James 4. Verse number 8. I'm so thankful this is in the Bible. Draw nigh to God. God's given you an invitation. To journey unto him. Isn't that beautiful? Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Now this is not a difficult question. Hands, is that external or is that internal? External. And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The mind, the heart, is that external or is that internal? You see that God wants us to internally and externally get thoroughly right with him? Not just cleaner, not just stuff that people can see around the surface, but the deep-rooted things, all of it, right with him. 
Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Verse number nine, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, for godly sorrow worketh repentance. This is real revival. To become wretched and feel miserable about our sin to be afflicted, to mourn, to grieve as to have lost something or someone precious. And every time we sin, we do. We sever that connection uh, fully in his presence. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We quench his power. And this is something that we should weep over and mourn, that we have cut ourselves off, so to speak, from this beautiful fellowship with God while there's sin, while the sin stays festering in our life. To weep, which means to sob and wail aloud, not a flippancy, but rather a fervency. There's a sincerity there in which we are broken, that we have grieved the heart of our sweet Savior. Many people want the laughter and the joy, but God says, let this laughter be turned to mourning and this joy to heaviness. In conclusion, let me share this. Real revival doesn't begin with joyous singing. It begins with conviction on the part of sinners. We all want the fruit of revival, the rejoicing, the red-hot radical Christianity, but we must participate in the root of revival, which is repentance, getting right with God. Genuine revival begins with brokenness and soul anguish and tears of sorrow, heaviness of conviction from the hand and heart of God, repentance of hypocrisy and worldliness and carnality and pride, even formalism and lusts and dead works, and from that brokenness comes the sweetness. From the anguish springs forth the exaltation and elation of Christ. From the tears comes the triumph of sin. From the sorrow arises the singing. From the heaviness, hearts can break forth with hallelujah, thine the glory. Repentance produces heaven-sent revival. Father, use these truths to help us genuinely search ourselves.